0: Okay. the S&P, the ASX stops. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is all about the number seven. I'm Scott Phillips and with me this week, seven days later, Dr. Ranir Bhattam Mahati. How are you, Doc? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm, mate, I'm very, very well. We do a podcast every seven days. Well, at least our regular podcast. Occasionally mm-hmm. we do a special podcast, but even those ones are seven days apart. And over the last seven days, the ASX is up 7%. Wow. Oh.
1: You're doing something with the seven. Do you like seven that? Is it working for you? It's, it's brilliant. Repetition, mate. It's, there you go. It's brilliant.
0: We'll talk about that. Well, let's talk about some, some fruit company that had some sort of event. I, I don't. Yeah. I think you might know some more details than I do. We'll talk about banks and the path back to dividends, the end of oil, or maybe just oil growth. We'll talk about afterpay because, hey, what's a podcast about a buy now, pay later reference? We will mention. An astonishing rise in consumer confidence, and we will, as always, dip into our favourite part of the podcast, the Motley Fool mailbag. Mate, we've got a big one coming up. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. You know we started without a tangent.
1: That's always a good... Well, it's seven and seven and seven. That's ah, a tangent. Okay.
0: Yeah, all right. So... Should we just get on with it then? Let's do it. Let's do it.
1: Motley Fool Money.
0: For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. Let's get on with it. And I... So I tweeted... Can I say... My my tweets aren't the only reason you should join Twitter. But if you're not on Twitter, you really genuinely are missing out. Um, I mentioned that only because I say most weeks. Oh, I tweeted this week um, as if people haven't seen it. I guess most people haven't. So, hey, join us. Follow us on Twitter. I'll give you the handles in a minute. I tweeted this morning, about last night, that... The ASX, so we're recording this Wednesday, actually, unusually, a day earlier than normal uh, because we've got some other commitments tomorrow. The ASX has been up 7.1% in the last seven trading days. Now, if you're new to investing, 7% doesn't sound like much, right? It's 7%, it's 5%, it's 2%. They're all kind of really small numbers. The market, on average, goes up about 10% a year. and We can quibble about what number over what period of time, but call it 10% on average. Seventy percent of a full year's average gain in the last week and a bit of trading sessions—that is phenomenal. It is the largest seven-day gain since July two thousand and nine. In other words, coming out of the GFC. That's no—I mean, look, I, I don't—I I don't really love the whole biggest gain since or worst fall since or you know—they're they're kind of just random numbers and you know everything happens eventually after whatever period of time. So I don't want to make too big a deal of that. But seven percent in seven days is is reasonably noteworthy. I would have thought. My point on Twitter was just that you know, for those of the those of I would say ask because I don't do it. But those people who follow the share market prognosticators, the so-called experts that know these things that tell you what's going to happen next, we're not those people, by the way. Um, unless, you're, unless your unless your favourite guru forecaster, crystal ball gazer, told you the market was going to be up seven percent in the last seven days, it's probably about time you stop following them. Not because they should have known, but because we all know they can't possibly know, and that's the point. But if you need extra reassurance that nobody knows, the last week and a bit, mate, is certainly the story of that one.
1: Let's do. Let's. Yeah.
0: No more thoughts? No. Do you I, want me to but, rant?
1: I, I mean, that, that's, <laughs> that's just, you know. What you
0: do you just, make of it? What do you make of a percent game? I mean, it, uh, the Nasdaq also during this week, by the way, was up, I think, was it 2.5% a day? There's, I mean, we're still very much in, in the middle of volatility territory, aren't we? Yeah.
1: Yeah, like so, like I mean, I don't know. Like I mean, it's an interesting statistic seven, seven uh, percent increase in seven days. Um, you know, it's happening after what, like, a, almost a decade, eleven years. Um, it, so, so to me, it's well, okay. So, when the ASX is up seven percent, means the banks are up. <laughs> well, that's also right? true. The, yes. the miners are up. Yep. That doesn't excite me at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that, that is the most boring sort of stuff that's up. You know, I could care less about what the banks said, you know, up or down. It, yeah, it just has material, almost zero impact to how I think about stuff. So, like, I mean... Does it say
0: anything about the economy or the market or the mood of investors though? Like at 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 a, at a macro level, yes, you're right. You know, banks and miners are more than half our market, so that 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 absolutely matters. You're dead it, right. But does it say anything
1: else? No. Actually, in my mind, okay. it's, it just talks about a bunch of people who have got a lot of money, which is basically super pushing prices up for a bunch of things in some random direction. That's what it tells me, and it means in my mind, at least, nothing for the future, completely. Like, I, I mean, it's 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 no indicator of the future, no indicator of, in my mind, of uh, current sentiments. But a bunch of people have got some money to invest, and they just put that into a bunch of banks, <laughs> leveraged assets, not the best assets available. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, it, you know, I don't know. Like, I mean, in my mind, I'm actually much happier if it was down (laughs) Mm. then then up (laughs) uh, because to me it's symptomatic of people chasing uh, the same short tail uh, trying to buy. how much more of the tail can you bite I mean ultimately there'll be no tail left right so I don't know I'm not it's, yeah, it's, you know, if you told me after pay was up 7%, uh, that's more interesting to me than the banks being up 7%. I mean, in my mind, they represent, you know, the after pay represents the new bank of some form mm-hmm. and the existing banks represent the old bank of some form. Um, and, and so therefore, at least in my mind, um, it's, it's basically more of the same. And mm-hmm. yeah, so it, it, I don't know, it, yeah, it's basically the old guard doing the old things. Not very interesting.
0: Uh, look, I, I tend to... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to half agree. I think that's absolutely true. Um, but I do think it talks to... And we, mention, um, uh, we mentioned the kind of the story of, of afterpay or where money's going. I think to some degree... Um, there is absolutely the what company you're invested in, but if you're investing in the market, you're investing in those companies anyway. I, I think there's absolutely a bank and mining story. I think there's, a, there's a, for mine at least there's a market story, which is about the sentiment of investors. If you're pulling into anything that makes the market go up seven percent, or, or any company that goes up seven percent in seven days, absent meaningfully fundamental news, i I think it says something about the sentiment of investors. Hopefully. <laughs> that as you say, uh, we don't have to be too worried about the market going up. I, I'm, I, I like you, am more happy being optimistic when the market's pessimistic because I reckon there's there's, you know, plenty of opportunity there. But it does say to me that regardless of where people are putting their money, there's a lot of money going into things and people are paying more for those things. And that, that talks to me a little bit about sentiment, a little bit about the kind of perspective ex- expectations of the market.
1: Yeah, my my thesis with that is that people have expectations in the wrong place. It, if you have expectations in the wrong place, it's going to hurt, right? So, um, in my mind, like more invest investment dollars going to the banks is actually a bad thing. More investment dollars going into um, I- into mining is mm-hmm. is reflective to some extent of um, not accepting the new right, the okay. new normal in yeah, my yeah, mind, yep, and yep. and yeah, I'm not a big fan of. Um, the same old, same old, mm-hmm. and into you know, the banks, mining, putting money into banks and mining is basically investment into the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, eventually, these things change, go away, become mm. uh, not so important, become relegated to you know, uh, not you know, 50% of the market, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. probably like 20% of the market, yeah. and then 10% of the market. So um, th- that's that's playing out slowly mm-hmm. but steadily, right? And after pay, for example, is, is a good example of... Um, Right. I mean, if Afterpay goes up another threefold, it will be as big or bigger than many of our banks, right? It's mm. already bigger than many of our smaller banks. And that, that's, so I think that's that's symptomatic reference to the mm. new mm. and that's symptomatic reference to, and this is like bouncing around in the old, yeah, right. so, yeah. Yeah
0: i got to say, too, mate, we're going to talk about banks in a second, but I'll, I'll bring in a little bit now. I mentioned to you guys yesterday that banks are up 35% since the lows of March, which is a phenomenal recovery. And again, rightly or wrongly, it's huge. The PEs of those, look, I mean, I, I've never been a big bank fan. I'm less bearish than you are, but I've never been a big fan. The PEs now for the banks are 16, 17, almost 18 times earnings. <clears throat> Excuse me, for ComBank. That's a, that's a lot to pay for a business that has limited... Uh, again unless i'm absolutely dead wrong limited growth potential at the profit line for the foreseeable future again the the profit drivers have been falling rates there's only so much further they can fall house price growth there's only so much further they can grow um you know reductions in lending standards they're certainly not looking like they're going to be relaxed any further it's hard to try to put a line through how a bank with a pe of 18 justifies that that pe over any extended period of time
1: yeah so that's, that's basically what i'm I'm saying maybe not in 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 that form. Like I mean, you know, people are paying 18 times earnings, 20 times earnings for these things mm. that have no growth. Um, have I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say they have bleak futures, but their future mm. is defini- definitely. Calcified. Yeah, calcification is on the way, right? I mean, these things are not going to disappear, but they mm-hmm. are going to be. If I had to put my money on, I would say <laughs> these are going to be substantially smaller versions of what they are today. Okay, interesting. Uh, in the future, right? And you know, whether whether we like it or not, whether we want to mm. support mm. it via monopoly or mm. quasi monopolies, uh, quasi whatever polies we have got oligopolies, um, as oligopolies they often uh, say, or yes. whatever you know, we want to yep. call it. Yep. Like, I mean, uh, and we want to support it via you know by rela- relaxation of lending standards mm. or. We Want to support it via you know further mm. increases to um, the housing side or whatever you want to do? It's basically um, if you push this to the extreme, you you build a house of pyramids that eventually crashes, <laughs> right? Um, it's like it's it's exact in many ways. It's like the tulip mania, right? You yeah, could right, say, right. Like well, how much can a flower cost? A flower can cost a lot until then. It doesn't cost a lot, right? So, right. right. Um, Yeah, like, I mean, you know, as I tell tell, uh, people who subscribe to my services, you know, (laughs) there's a lot more to look at, um, you know, a lot of interesting Mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. to look at beyond these, uh, you know, big five or 10 companies, whether it's, you know, I think nothing wrong with this fundamentally with the companies, it's just at 16, 18, 20 times earnings, I mean, you could be buying anything. Like, you know.
0: I just I just don't. I mean, you can make an argument that PEs are higher these days because of lower interest rates. I think that's fundamentally mathematically correct. PEs should be higher when rates are lower um, if you believe the, the kind of basic fundamental underpinnings of the way any asset, let alone shares, should be priced. So that should be fair. Um, by the way, I think it's also behind house price rises. Um, but I think... You've got to have some growth from somewhere. I, again, I, I, I would take the other side of your bet for just for the fun of it. I don't think the banks will be meaningfully smaller in five years' time, but I don't think they'll be meaningfully bigger either. And I think you need to be, if you're paying 18 times earnings for something, you need to have some belief that it's going to be meaningfully bigger at some point. And I think either way, whether you're right, whether I'm right, neither of us are, are out there banging the drum for strong profit growth on banks, are we?
1: Yeah, look, I think they're going to be meaningfully smaller uh, from here on. Like, I mean, yeah, but I, mean, you know, my, I wouldn't short them because mm. I don't short. But I mean, yeah, like this, I, I personally don't see any reason for them to be um, maintain their size. Like, yeah, I, I yeah. would think that the. Neo banks and uh, newer business models, which is you know, afterpay, is a great example of mm-hmm. what a new mm-hmm. business model can do. Mm-hmm. Um, these things will chip away and take share mm-hmm. um, from these guys. And you know, again, I, I, you know, if uh, yeah, mm, <laughs> I, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, mm, like you know, eighteen times earnings for. Uh, ComBank or mm, you can get mm, like mm. Uh, you know, JP Morgan Chase for 13.7 times earnings. They mm. have $2 trillion in deposits. Lot of right, money. <laughs> <laughs> two trillion <laughs> in deposits. So I, I I don't know why investors mm. would pay the kind of multiples they're paying. They shouldn't, but they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and as we know that if the multiples go up, eventually it hurts. Yeah, exactly. uh, What's
0: well, got it right? They, yeah, everything everything's got its own gravity. Let let me let me uh, change the agenda for the for the chat this morning and and go straight to the dividends. But we're on the banks, mate, because the action no sense to go away and come back to it. Um, BoQ Bank of Queensland restoring to some degree its dividend today. CBA saying earlier this week that it has. It is trying to get back to its to its old policy of seventy to eighty percent net profit being paid out as dividends. I have to believe that's to some degree behind the bank share price recoveries of the last six months. The sense that maybe bad debts aren't as bad as we thought. Maybe dividends are coming back. You know, maybe you go back to where we were. I think I, I could almost imagine what you're going to say, but I, I'll, I'll say it first. And you can either agree or, or add to it. Um, you know, there is some sense of. I think in Australia, the, the assumption, incorrect though it may be, is that one of my favorite investing acronyms, TINA, there is no alternative. And right now, I think it's still that sense of investors who used to own the banks and who maybe either didn't own them or weren't adding to them while the worst of the, the, the crisis was kind of com- coming through, have finally kind of looked at it and gone, oh, thank goodness we can go back to the banks again. That sense of they were just waiting for the right time to go back rather than genuinely reassessing how likely it was, how, probable, how, how appropriate it is. The, the the psyche Among many Many investors Which is just We want to own the banks We need to own the banks We want the income We trust the banks It's made us a lot of money Okay we can't do it right now But as soon as the coast is clear We're going to pile back in there And the dividends rem- I think is the last piece Of that particular Psychological jigsaw For investors to actually Jump back in
1: yeah, like, so I don't disagree with, uh, I think. So, yeah, what, what the banks are doing is basically what I call shareholder management, right? So they're basically <laughs> doing, sh- which is the absolutely abysmal thing to do, uh, shareholder management. So instead of trying to grow your business, make, make it bigger, better, different, <laughs> you know, yep. fit into the new age, you're basically busy. Uh, oh, if I, you know, jack back up my dividends, oh, so what if I am taking more risk? That's yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll get the investment. So is this the peculiar, really like like this is the sort of mindset I would say Mm -hmm. generally describes, uh, you know, calcified businesses, right? Mm. Businesses that are solely focused on one thing, which is how can I manage my share price, Mm. right? Um, And that's what's happening. And for investors, I'll just say this, right? I mean, you know, why own the banks? You could have owned, you know, I'll just use again afterpay as an mm-hmm. example I mean, could have won afterpay pay up 5x or 10x or whatever right I mean the banks are up 35% uh, afterpay is up you know probably 300% mm-hmm. uh, from the Marshall so like I mean you know it's a, I think there's a there. I think there are a couple of things. Uh, banks are regarded as too sacred, uh, you know, too big to mm, fail. Mm, mm. None of those things are actually true, right. right? Nothing is too big to fail. I right. mean, everything can fail. Um, you don't need dividends to live. You know, you can enjoy your cap gains, uh, your capital gains mm. to. Um, to live and you know just sell off some shares right i mean why do you need that frank dividend when you can yeah again it's really individuals making poor choices and when i say individuals i'm not blaming retail investors it's the entire industry um where you know this superannuation industry if you're putting money Mm. behind these things i mean it's you know indirectly well your money is basically going into assets that Really are not the future, mm. uh, in any sense. So I, I don't know. I, I feel a little. Um, um, the investor psychology here is not very useful, mm. right? And 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 maybe it's for those people who want to take a contrarian view. It's an opportunity if you're you know willing to be patient, willing to be tolerant of volatility. The potential there's a, there's potentially a lot of money to be made here by looking elsewhere, looking away uh, from the banks and miners.
0: Mm. I don't necessarily disagree with that either, mate. I think there's. Uh, I, I'm again. I, I'm less. Extremely new on the on the dividend piece, I think there's there's a reason and a role for fully frank dividends in many people's portfolios. I do worry that, again, as you made the point, that because the banks seem to be the... Look, I, the, the funny thing about delusions is when they're shared by enough people, they can go on for a very long time, right? To the extent we... To everyone, that's, banks are up 35%, not because they've necessarily become such different businesses over the past six months, but because sentiment has meant that people are buying more bank shares because they bought more bank shares. And that's, that's you know, in its own sense, what's driven the share price higher. The question, of course, as with any company, is, is the future... Attractive enough to justify that particular share price. I think that's the the question we're both... Oh, well, that's the answer we're both aligned on, which is just be a little bit careful here, people, because just because share prices are up, just because everyone's buying the bank shares, and some people will point to that and say, see, I told you, and that can be true until it's not. And, and, and fundamentals will always, always out. It can take a long time on the up and the downside, but eventually you've got to pay the piper, and that's, um, that's the challenge. Mate, speaking of paying, paying the piper, speaking of great businesses... There's a, a little fruit company that I know you're slightly fond of. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, apparently it's a fruit company that makes mobile phones, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some other stuff, bits and pieces, um, potty things, and watchy things. Um, they had their most recent event. I don't. Mm-hmm. Know if it, was it have a name?
1: Oh, it's called Welcome Speed. Welcome, high speed. High, high
0: commerce oh, oh, speed. Hey, hey, those punsters at Apple. <laughs> uh, speaking of high speed, then what? I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you off the leash. The Apple event this morning. What uh, what do we what did we see? What do we hear? What do you make of Apple's new announcements?
1: Um, so, like you know, nothing, nothing like uh, extraordinarily new. Nothing uh, you know uh, groundbreaking. Um, other than just the fact that they have five G phones, which is I think, I think important. So mm-hmm. they have their five G. You know, all their entire new phone line now has uh, or five G chips. They support all the various. Um, various bands that exist, you know, so there's, you know, extreme high speed at, you know, very short range and all, all sorts of different bands in different countries. So the, the chips are now going to support that. Um, other than that, you know, it was a pretty uh, low-key event. I mean, they announced mm-hmm. yeah, many, mini speakers, which basically competes with the, you know, the small speakers the Google and the Amazon sell. Okay. Yep. Um, and they announced a few other things. You know, some improvements on the cameras, some improvements on videos. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of pro-like tools. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, what stood out to me really is that this was, you know, more of the same from Apple. Uh, the Technology is sort of in a um, a transient state, for waiting for certain things to mature before we can sort of go to the next right. level of yep, technology yep, yep. until then Apple's basically saying, well, I'm gonna just take some market shares so the of the range mm-hmm, of phones, mm-hmm. uh, You know, and US dollars pricing goes from like 399 or something all the way to like 999 right so they've got basically a type of phone a new phone mm. with almost all capabilities except with you mm-hmm. know it uh, ch- changes to form factor size and things like that um, to address a larger um, um, market size. Apple's market share is pretty small roughly like 12% or something like that so they're probably gaining looking to increase market share by expanding coverage in terms of the different types of devices they are mm. offering and you know overall I thought it was very you know good um, good little uh, little strategy I think from on on their part. Now, again, as I said, nothing that stood out as whoa, this is you know super innovative" because mm-hmm. you know five G phones are coming was well well, well known. It was a surprise, yeah. And frankly, as I was telling you, like you know, if you took out the five G part, there was yeah. nothing really new. Um, Does that surprise
0: yeah. you? The sense that there is nothing new. Are, are we are we getting close to peak phone in the sense that? There's only so much more you can do with a bit of glass and metal and some chips inside it. I mean, are we? Is this? And I don't, it's not about Apple at all, but from all the phone makers, the the iterative evolution, the gap, the jumps have been small, will seem to have been smaller and smaller each time. Are we? Are we kind of getting to the point where it's like we're kind of done here, guys? Like we'll incrementally improve this stuff, but no matter which phone maker you are, no matter which brand you are, we're kind of at some sort of destination point.
1: Yeah, Alexa, I think that's roughly true. Like, you know, we are probably, which is what I said, right? I mean, we are sort of at a transition point where, you know, phones are as powerful or more powerful than many mm-hmm. computers. Um, that's
0: incredible, isn't it? You know, <laughs> that's like really cool. The- we, shouldn't, we shouldn't actually gloss over that. That is one of the coolest parts of the last 10, 12 years is literally the world in your pocket.
1: Yeah, the world in your pocket. I you said like when I said a high level, there's nothing new, right? I mean, but at the, you know, if you look at the A14 chip that they put in, like it's got a five nanometer. It's basically designed to find. It's the first chip hmm. on a five nanometer design.
0: Okay, help me out with that. Mate. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to break it down for a lot of So ba- like basically,
1: me. if it's it's saying that each transistor yep. is on that five nanometer scale, which means you can you're probably fitting in like you know. 5 billion transistors on one chip. <laughs> oh, right? No way. This is really hard on the and, head of the pin stuff. And right now if you look at what Intel is doing in terms of chips for mm, example mm. Um, they are no longer following this sort of Moore's curve where the number of transistors you know right. doubles every 18 months, right? Mm. That was this that was a only company probably still doing that is Apple. Right. right? Okay. So Apple is a better chip maker today. Right. Than all the other chip makers, right? right? Um so, uh, I, I, so there's a lot of things happening underneath the uh, the shell. Mm-hmm. But the shell is not changing, and the functionality of the shell is, you know, basically, you know, the changes are very delta. Yeah, okay. And and me what it basically means is that you know we are waiting for certain other technologies to mature. So the new thing this phone has a lidar sensor. Right, uh, which allows you a sense of space, and they had a very cool demo there of, um, I think Medtronic, um, which you know looks at the office building spaces and then sets mm-hmm. it up for like you know medical functionality, mm-hmm. and instead you know, they do things using cardboard, mm-hmm. but now they can actually use a smartphone and virtually put things in different places. Oh, and it's cool. all being enabled by this lidar uh, and augmented reality. So that, I think what what we are waiting for is technology to mature, mm. uh, software stacks to mature for some other thing to come. What that other thing is, we don't know, but is, you know, I, I think okay. what we see right now is that we are going to a very wearable type of look. So we're gonna be, you know, the phone is gonna still be the center of our communication, but we're gonna have a lot of other things that are gonna, you know, um, you know, the Internet of Things is going to finally get realized, but I think right. we're waiting for sort of the right moment. And okay. in in the meantime, Apple is doing what it, it, it really should, which is expand market share, build services, build mm. APIs, mm. build, you know, software tools, um, you know, expand services and things like that. So, you know, so that, that's that. That's really what's going on.
0: So we're not so much at a final destination as at some sort of staging point where we're consolidating and waiting for the next lot of stuff to be possible. Is that is that a better well, we, way to put it?
1: We, we're we probably like, we're very mature uh, in a smartphone world like I mean you'll have new applications and things like that but you know like I mean your phone has a certain screen there's, there's only <laughs> yeah. your, your phone yeah, can right. go from 4 inches to <laughs> yeah. 9 inches at, some point it's a tablet, uh, right. at, at that point it becomes a tablet <laughs> and your phone can have you know camera right. functionality that's yeah. like yeah. Uh, you know a DSLR yeah. which it already does yeah. your phone can take pictures at <laughs> night and your phone can act like a, a camera system that professional people can use for shooting movies that's right, already right, happening right. Um you can play games on your phone, your phone can do, so all those things, you know, you can do incrementally better, Mm. but it, it, it is really at a point where you would expect something else to come. So, like, you know, the Apple Watch is a great example of Mm. that something else, which is realizing health functionality, um, you know, various... So, the NHS, for example, is putting health data into the Apple phone, um, you know, so it it becomes a record for health. Um, So, all of those things, you know, where the record for health moves to sort of the smartphone and uh, the Apple Watch becomes the... Mm. um, so the default gateway for a lot of diagnostic things, right? So those sort of things are happening, but you know, but there may be some other missing pieces mm-hmm. um, in in the process. So you know, as I said, like I mean, from an, uh, from an operations point of view, they're doing all the right things, you know, giving a range of choices for customers so that they can upgrade. You know, uh, this is potentially the largest upgrade cycle that we will see in probably last among the last three years. So, you so, know, tell, so me,
0: tell me, tell what that is. You made that comment before we started chatting. I didn't ask you at the time because I wanted to hold the question for now. Um, this is, by your own words, a reasonably small set of evolutions. Yet you're talking about the biggest upgrade cycle. I would have thought that would be more likely to happen when the big kind of, you know, uh, big stuff off kind of, you know, big revolutions come out. Oh, it's got this great new thing. We need a new phone for that. Does anyone need to buy a new... Anything phone in this generation of mobiles?
1: Yeah. So here's the funny thing, right? So like you know, so we'll go back to your banks example, right? Mm. People pile back into banks because people know banks, right? Right? People don't buy pile into uh, afterpay because they don't know what afterpay is, right? <laughs> right? New stuff. Yeah. Moves slowly. Yeah, yeah. Right. But so a clever company like Apple, mm. what it does is it keeps the old thing going. Yeah offering a lot of choices right. while building the stepping stones for the new okay. right so um, you know you you have the iPhone 200 million iPhones are sold r- roughly 200 250 million iPhones are sold every year right but not everybody has an apple watch right right and apple watch is probably growing at a phenomenal pace that's because that's new yeah. and it, it doesn't have maybe functionalities people are you know not really sure do we need it and things like that. Right. The same thing is going to happen to whatever this new so i mean in my mind app, apple watch is already more successful than the apple phone given the point in time where it is. Yeah, okay. It's already more successful, yeah. right? It's just the, of the apple, number
0: of devices sold at it's Oh, just, just the, the devices cycle?
1: sold you know growth, you know what it it can do right. relative you know because technology has improved over time, right? Right. It is just you know unlike you know, Apple has a problem of what I call, you know, having something so successful that mm. everything else that is so successful doesn't look as successful, right? right? Because, you know, like I mean, if you didn't have the iPhone mm. success mm. In, in terms of then then the Apple Watch success would look like, whoa, this is like, you know, like I mean, right.
0: if you're a small independent well, hardware like, I maker mean, and you really yeah, like I mean, should be, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, like I mean, if you're a Fitbit and you could do half or one quarter of. Um, Apple Watch, you'd yeah. be like you know jumping up and down. It'll be yeah, like, right. you know, Apple Watch by itself would probably be like bigger than ComBank, right. <laughs> as as a as a business, right? And it probably is. So so I think that's the thing, right? So um, and and yet I'm saying it's going to be the biggest upgrade cycle, largely because the um, there's a lot of people with three plus years old phones mm-hmm. who will now have a lot of. Comp- so if you if you go back three years and then you compare the three year old phone mm. with today's phone, yeah this is leaps and bounds sure, sure. you know so what we are thinking is oh it's not that much better than last year that yeah. doesn't matter yeah. what matters is on average well three year old phone is blah this phone is this it can do all these cool things yeah, right. plus gives me 5g yeah. it's enough reason and i have a range of choices yeah. enough reason so i think it's going to be like financially Super rewarding. Like, I mean, you know, as I keep saying, Tim Cook is a superb operator um, and he knows exactly what he's doing. So I think this is going to be great for financial results. Like, Apple is going to basically hit it out of the park. Um, but it's going to make all those commentators who are looking for something great yeah. unhappy. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's not you know so it's very it's a very deliberate operation right you upgrade every year you know every you know only few people buy the stuff every year right but if you go back three years whoa like I mean all the capabilities that are there in today's phone did not exist Mm -hmm. three years ago so Mm -hmm. I think that's that's yeah so that's not so
0: much this phone particularly that spurs the cycle but there's just enough in this phone relative to the phones people are replacing. To make it worth doing, yeah, okay, awesome. yeah. nothing. Okay, that's enough. That's enough free advertising for Apple. Let's uh, let's let's move on, um, mate. The the thank you for the summary, by the way. The uh, I'll get you to the Google update next week. You can you can whack lyrical about Google's great things. There's
1: only one person who has a Google fall in all of Australia, right? That's probably you. So,
0: my uh, so. genius is often un, unappreciated. Its own generation. Yeah, you
1: know, I, I agree with that. But I mean, it's like, I come mean, It's still going to be interesting because, like I mean, it's, you know, it's like me talking to you, and you already know about. Whatever that phone is. <laughs> so it doesn't really no one matter. else cares, okay, Yeah, so enough. it doesn't really matter. Fair enough. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
0: I was interested today in a couple of headlines I saw around solar and around oil. Now, the International Energy Agency have to say they've been a little bit hit and miss with their forecast so I'm going to put an asterisk on this but in any case they still said their latest forecasts are saying the end of global oil demand growth we'll break that down in a second within a decade and more subdued outlook for gas as renewables power forward now we've talk- peak oil has been around since 1970 right? there were people saying peak oil is coming because it's going to be too expensive to get out of the ground you won't be able to find any more of it we'll run out of oil this, this is exactly the reverse. This is peak oil, but from a demand perspective, the International Energy Agency, basically not that oil will be over, but the end of oil demand growth. In other words, we still use more oil this year than we used last year and the year before, and that growth year on year has been impressive. They're basically saying that within a decade, people will actually use less oil than the previous year. Now, that's not a big deal until you realize that it really is because a whole lot of companies' business models, the oil price itself relies on an imbalance between demand and supply and an imbalance where as long as demand outstrips supply, you can continue to produce more and more oil and you can find more complex places, more difficult places, more expensive places to find it, right? So, the first oil, you could you know you could walk you could walk across the U.S. Midwest and you know hammer hammer a nail into the ground and find oil, find oil right, and that, that was super cheap to get in Saudi Arabia in the Middle East, still super cheap to get, but each sequential well is harder to find, more expensive to find, more expensive to drill, just because we're having to look in different places. This turns the entire industry potentially. I don't want to. I don't. Wanna, Getting a hyperbole, but I also don't want to understate this. This is big, right? If this happens, it turns the entire energy sector on its head.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I think, yeah, well, okay, first it's, it's like, you know, it's their forecast. It's yes. like us making. <laughs> was that? Um, uh, us making. So, uh, yeah, I agree with yeah, you. It's yeah, a forecast. Yeah. It's like us telling you the market is going to do exactly this next yeah, yeah, year or the yeah. day, year after. Um, we can't, I mean, similarly, they can't as well. Yeah. Oh, but, I mean, it looks like it's happening largely mm-hmm. because I mean, so the sustainable transport is the big is a big component of that, right? right if right. if you t- if you, if sustainable transport is happening via you know batteries and and things, and, and mm-hmm. I I think, okay, so fundamentally I think a couple of things are um, it, it are widely misunderstood, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you know in nineteen zero three, when Nineteen hundred three. I might be getting my dates wrong by here by a couple of years or maybe a few years. But in nineteen hundred three, when the New York Parade happened, mm-hmm. um, most of the things there were horse carriages. Right. Right. Wow. There you go. Right. By nineteen seventeen. Yeah. Most of the horse carriages were gone. Isn't that fascinating? Right. Yeah. This happened in the nineteen hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Right. So. It wouldn't surprise me that in the next ten years mm. there are no internal combustion engine vehicles mm-hmm. being made. At least anymore. New ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, and if the cost of the of the battery powered vehicles mm-hmm. is substantially lower, mm-hmm. and the and the the other thing is that the battery powered vehicles are going to have substantially high new technology. Right. It actually may be the case that people basically scrap the existing ice-powered mm. stuff, mm. Mm. right? And that could actually accelerate. So, I mean, it is sometimes hard to see how this might happen, but, you know, there is, you know, mm. in maybe in 20 years' mm. time, you don't have any gas-powered vehicles on the planet Mm. right now part of part of the energy debate has always been that um the big developing countries have always said like you know well you western countries have polluted and gotten ahead now we need to pollute to get ahead Mm. but there is a realization in at least some parts that like if china is a big one where china has got big impetus Mm. on um not going the polluted way to grow vehicle sales and things like that so they've got big incentives for uh, sustainable energy so so that's one angle with which i think is starting to um uh, you know become very relevant and then uh, i think then the for the gas part like gas gas is like so. gas i have a h- harder time seeing so gas is used domestically gas is used mm-hmm. um for um gas uh, gas uh, fired plants mm-hmm. I don't have a good view of what's what is likely the gas replacement. I mean, you could mm-hmm. you, you know, people would still use it for cooking, and you'd still use it for some pico plants and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I don't have a good view on what distribution with with just gas per se. But, but I mean, use like diesel and petrol. I think that use decreasing seems seems almost seems like obvious at this point. So. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's, and I think that's the key for me is you know as you as you rightly say, it is a forecast. Um, they also they've had some terrible forecasts over the years. I've been wrong in, in a whole lot of different directions, and of course the usual suspects came out and criticise this report. the The pro renewables guys said, "Oh, you are being too too you know conservative," and the and the fossil fuel guys, "Oh, you are being too aggressive." And maybe maybe that by definition means if you've got people argue at both sides, you're probably roughly right in the middle somewhere. Um, if both groups are criticising you for being too too far in the other direction, but it is a reminder for investors. And I think, you know, we talk about old industries. i got to say, I'd rather own banks than oil companies right now. Um, you know, it, just in terms of, not that I'm, again, saying I don't own any banks, I probably wouldn't buy any banks, but relatively speaking, the very real chance that for, for, um, for coal companies in particular, there are stranded assets because the world moves on. For oil companies, that they're either current or new uh, uh, wells Simply become uneconomic to either continue to produce or probably more likely, new ones are simply harder to find. You know, we've talked about, you know, the, the the potential. Who's going to go and drill a new oil well if these forecasts come to fruition in the next, I don't know, three five years? Who's going to drill a well with a fifteen year life? Who's going to go and do those things? And this is where. Companies, we've seen this in electricity already in Australia with coal-fired power plants. You know, companies are simply not making those twenty-year investments because they don't have they don't have reasonable certainty in either the government or the, the the political scenario. But I think, as importantly, frankly, the sheer cost scenario of you know, is it cost-effective to set up a new coal-fired power plant? Question mark Is it really going to be economical to go and drill a new oil well? And I think that, if you're an investor, you really need to. You don't have to be the, the you know the the furthest out there futurist of the world. You don't have to take extreme views, but it is reasonable to say, hey, if some of these scenarios do come to pass, and you don't even have to be a, a climate change believer. I don't know how you can't be. I think the science is pretty clear. But um, I'll I'll stop editorialising at that point. But you know, even 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 if it was completely fanciful, but yet governments and consumers and the economics of the industry were still going to work against you. You don't, you know, being right is one thing, but simply reading the market, understanding where things are going, or where investors are going, where business is going, it's a really, really important part of long-term investing.
1: Yeah, I I think I I agree with that. I mean, again, like it's it's generally a bad idea to hold on to. So, a couple of like from an investment point of view, right? It's generally a bad idea to um, to buy um, into a business that is in Mm. sort of a secular decline. Right, or a business that has a uh, strong potential being overrun by serious, serious, uh, uh, by innovation, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, like you know, I think the, the oil industry is in that it's a commodity industry too, which makes mm-hmm. it very, very difficult. Um, and it has larger implications, Has impl- it has economic implications, right? So, mm-hmm. like you know, for less diversified economies which depend a lot on that oil income, mm-hmm. that's a big problem,
0: yeah, yeah, huge. right?
1: I mean, you know, they should be really thinking about. What's coming next, yeah. right? How are they going to actually yeah. uh, make a living, mm. right? So I think that's that's I think the bigger there are some big big uh, you know economic realities out of it. So
0: huge, yeah. Mate, let's um, let's move on from from the past to the future. You mentioned Afterpay earlier, mm-hmm. and it's worth mentioning that this morning again we're recording this on Wednesday, the fourteenth of October. This morning, Afterpay was given a clean bill of health from the anti money laundering mob Oztrack. Australian transaction something something I remember now. Uh, anyway, I track them off. Who the government mob who, who are uh, obliged and, and uh, required to keep track of where money's going and make sure banks and financial institutions are doing the right thing. This is the same group, by the way, that scored more than a billion dollars out of Westpac for their breaches. So this is this is a, an organisation, a regulatory body with meaningful teeth and pretty powerful group, particularly in the current environment. They've said it was off to pay. nope, you guys are good. Keep doing what you're doing. No problems here that's got to be something of a tick in the box for afterpay who have been fighting the, I won't say good fight because I have my own views on this one. I think you actually agree with me on this one. I think they should actually embrace regulation rather than fighting it. But in any case, thus far, they can say, hey, we did everything we said we were going to do. We're doing it properly. The regulator says we're okay. Another tick in the box, if you like, another another risk removed from afterpay's growth story.
1: Yeah, like so. Like, I think what is interesting here is, um, like, you know, when they're, you know, money laundering and all these things. I mean, it's hard to money launder through, you know, small transaction payments that, that you know, is being facilitated. I mean, you can everything is possible, but you know, mm. it's not, you know, it, it's easy to do when you have accounts have hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> than accounts which are dealing with, uh, right, uh, right. you know, be effectively yeah, debt of, right. you know, a few hundred dollars. Right. That's right. So I think that's that. It, it is. Uh, it's, it's a good win for them yeah, it's yeah. Um, again <laughs> I I really think that you know they are an example and, and the others like you know Zip and others and again mm. like there's an entire sector we can have views on you know whether or not I mean I, I think you know how how we should view the regulation but I think it is symptomatic of innovation and of innovative ways of providing finance for example right mm-hmm. um and I think that's that's great, and and and, the, and it's good to know that they're doing all the right things. So mm-hmm. that is good for that finance sector and in, in the in, in innovation there. So, it's, you know, I like it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's good. Like I, you know, I've said before, and I'll, I'll say again. I, I think the after I should be regulated uh, in accordance with other credit providers, and I think it would make sense for them and others. Frankly, um, I think at some point they will come to this view. Is my speculation because once you're big enough regulation becomes your friend to actually keep out the little guys who would otherwise come and steal your crown given the choice. And after pay right now is a disruptor. At some point they become the incumbent. And once you're the incumbent, you you want to uh, you're more than happy to help government put in rules that might, uh, might just, you know, make life a little bit tougher for your for your competitors, particularly something like this where it's a scale story. If you can scale the sort of costs and the sort of processes required for a know your customer type scenario. That's what they call it in, in finance land, know your customer in KYC. Um, which which really is supposed to make sure that Everyone knows who's doing what, where risks are being taken, whether they can pay back the debt. And in Austrax's case, whether the money's going overseas or staying here. So I think it makes some sense. I think they should. I think it would make them much more credible, uh, not even as an investment uh, uh, candidate, although that would actually help, by the way, but also just as a, as a player in the financial markets. Um, and, and to whatever degree they can become the incumbents without losing that kind of innovative drive that, you know, we don't, you, you don't as a shareholder want them to become calcified, to use your word from earlier, Doc. But if they can, if they can find that, that, you know position for themselves i think that would make a whole a whole lot more sense maybe than um, than trying to trying to continually buck against it but again i suppose doing completely fine without my advice mate so i don't, I don't imagine they're listening to this podcast if they are i don't reckon they're taking their uh, strategic advice from me so I'll, I'll probably let them do their own thing uh, but i certainly if i was them, would be finding a way to to make your peace with that and, and maybe even embracing it so that you can say to your competitors hey we're doing this you guys should be too
1: well, after pay, shares are happy and up there, you know, but close to getting to like a $100 mark. <laughs> How good is that?
0: There you go. Good Better news than for
1: owning the bank bank shares.
0: Good news for shareholders. All right, mate, let's uh, let's go to the mailbag, shall we? We'll finish off with a couple of questions. We've got a bit of time this morning, so we'll do we'll a couple of questions from our listeners. Um, I'm going to check in on Mark. Now, Mark had a, a French girlfriend I think for memory um, Apologies, Mark if it's your wife I can't remember exactly but let, let's say let's say French partner uh, and and I did suggest that that Mark's partner was Marjorie, as in Marjorie but but spelt with uh, pronounced in the French way with it with a silent J or at least a kind of a, a Y sounding J I'm sorry I probably offended every French listener by describing it that way uh, Mark replies thanks so much Scott for the correct pronunciation of Marjorie in French she loved it. I'm basically saying this because I just make myself feel good, and, you know, I, I screw up, I screw up names that regularly. I've got, I've got to take my wins when I can get them to prove I'm not a complete dump, numpty. Um, she was very happy and laughed a lot. Thanks too for the discussion on my question. Brilliant, it says Mark. Mark, thank you, mate. You're very, you're very welcome, and thank you for the feedback. I am beyond pleased that I managed to get one right finally. So, uh, so thank you, mate, for that. All right. A question from Josh, Doc. This is more this is not about me or about me giving myself a wrap. This is about a, a question from Josh, and it's a topic we don't cover all that frequently. Mm-hmm. So Doc says uh, Doc says Josh says, Hi Scott, just a question for the mailbag. Would love to hear your and doc's thoughts on retail trusts, center group, and vicinity centers. Would they be a good buy considering the discount of these businesses and a projected timeline for recovery? That would be great, and he says in capital letters, "Fool on lads!" with a thumbs up and a big green tick. Josh, thank you for the question, mate. It's a good. One. We don't speak about retail trusts all that frequently. Um, I don't. I was going to ask you a question to try and direct the conversation. Am go. going to? I'm just going to say, "What do you reckon?"
1: Well, well, I I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't look at retail trusts. Um, Ed Vestley, who runs our dividend investor service, mm. I mean, he looks at um these sort of things i don't really look pay attention i mean i can have mm. some course reviews so i mean I think malls in the current format are a bit challenged but that doesn't mean malls go away i think (laughs) malls have a role in society in terms of entertainment as a meeting Mm -hmm. hub and things like that um they're currently in this sort of really painful position where nobody wants to pay them rent (laughs) and government says don't pay them rent while all these companies make billions of dollars of profit so they're they're, i think uh eh? they're in this hard sport and i sympathize with their um, hard sport mm-hmm. I mean you know they have real assets that they have put together that <laughs> that they have full uh, freedom <laughs> to not pay rent on uh, uh, others have full freedom to not pay rent on that uh, you know I, I wouldn't like to own an asset that uh, you know where it was a government sanctioned don't don't pay rent it's fine uh, type of c- scenario so I feel their pain but I don't have a way to value them and I don't know how the future looks enough Um or I don't know the future looks for anything, but I don't I just don't have a good sense of you know what their position is in terms of you know how much um, they can mm. you know drive in terms of rent going forward, uh, what sort of growth they can expect, um, you know what else can they do to you know drive funds? I mean. Um, the, the things like you know theaters and and so on movies are also being you know so like as Andrew Leggett, our colleague was saying Disney is going mm-hmm. digital for distribution do i mean if, if most movies go um direct to consumer for distribution that has impact on other things that are associated with malls such as you know movie halls and things like that right so <laughs> yeah um yeah like I mean they're, they're again in an industry which is undergoing change I don't, I don't have a good view of valuation there though
0: yeah, I think it's a good one. I so I got two issues with. So let, let me start with the positives, mate. Just for just because I like to. Um, I think retail trust can be interesting for people who are looking for stable income-producing shares. Um, if that's kind of what you want, the problem I have with them is I don't think the income is necessarily going to be as great as you expect. The shares are probably going to lose to the market, and the dividends aren't franked. So other than that, you're probably okay. Um, so th- those are reasonable ones, right? I think so. Let's go through those. Um, if you own a retail trust, it's effectively owning a collection of businesses. Now, if you own a collection of know, office buildings uh, or in this case, shops, um, you're going to charge your rent and that rent's probably, I don't know, 5 7% doc, if I'm generous, of the building's value because if it's any less than that, people go elsewhere. I'm sorry, if it's any more than that, people go elsewhere. So, you know, that, that's you, your market rent is probably, I don't know, 5 or 6%, I suppose, of the value of the asset, right? So that, let's assume that's true. If you're buying that, that those shares for the book of value in other words the value of the assets then all you're getting is that 6 or 7% return and that's that's fine it's lovely but it's not probably probably not going to beat the market over the long term and it's certainly not going to beat the market over the long term if the market continues to deliver the sort of 10-ish percent returns it has in the past so if you think about that and you say well hang on why would I do that now to the question maybe you get them when they're super cheap and maybe you get some sort of just recovery gain um, and that's true uh, potentially although as I've said before and we talked about the banks earlier in this podcast mate the you know, the banks are up 35%, which is wonderful, except the ASX is up a little bit more than that. And you've made the point yesterday, NASDAQ's up even more than that. And so if you kind of look at that and say, Well, see, I was right, the shares are up, it's like, yeah, well, the market was up more. So even in a depressed kind of share price state, you have to believe they can beat the market again. Otherwise, just buy a market ETF and go fishing, as I've said many, many times. So it's a tough one for me to look at those companies and think they are likely to be market beaters. And if they're not. I'd rather buy the market because then I get the market return. If I, can, if you can't beat them, join them, as they say, and quite literally with a super cheap ETF, you can do exactly that. And of course, you can buy stocks that beat the market and do even better again. So, if if your if your retail trust is the third of three <laughs> ideas in in that order, you know, in terms of preference or, or, or likely upside, um, it's just really hard to find a rationale for it. You also make the point, Doc. I think it's a really good one about the contracts and the the rent they can charge. The, the rules are being rewritten right now, even if they're not literally legally being written. We've seen a couple of big retailers basically either pull out closed stores or renegotiate rents. And so if your contracted rent isn't worth the paper it's written on because they can be renegotiated at a moment, moment's notice, I just, I, I don't know, I, I can't think of, maybe if I'm center group, and are in the Westfield centres. They're probably the they're probably the best in the bunch. Generally speaking, they're probably going to have the premier premier retailers. They're probably going to have the best foot traffic. They're probably going to have the highest average rents. If you made me buy one, I'd buy centre. Um, I might look at the suburban ones, the shopping centres Australasia, for example. I'd have a Woolies, a Kmart, uh, and a couple of cafes because again, they're local kind of convenience retail, and I guess you've always got customers there. The ones I desperately would hate to own are probably vicinity to the question, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Um, Because they're kind of that mid-tier, right? They're not local and convenient. They're not super premium and destinations. They're kind of stuck somewhere in between. And as we go more online, as as retailers can negotiate a bit harder, I don't know. I just wouldn't. I don't think I want to own vicinity. I don't think I want to own those mid-tier retail trusts. Any more on that, mate?
1: Oh, no. I have nothing to add.
0: Beautiful. Let's go to a question from Jordan. Now, Jordan talks about a previous podcast we did. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, go back and listen to our previous podcast. We did a a whole episode on investor mistakes and how to overcome them. And Jordan asks the, uh, I think the the appropriate follow-up question. He says, Hi, Scott. I'm currently listening to the investor mistakes podcast episode and wanted to ask that if you don't use a DCF for valuing a stock's price, which method do you use? (laughs) He says, "I would appreciate a response, mate. Thanks." And that's from Jordan. That's a that's a reasonable question. <laughs> He's saying, "Hang on, if, if these guys don't use a, a, a method for valuation, why am I listening to these knuckleheads?" And I reckon that's we didn't ask, exactly phrase it that way, but I can I can am paraphrase it, Jordan, with uh, with with kindness from you in that in that context. So, doc, DCF, discounted cash flow. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that every company is actually act, accurately could be described using a discounted cash flow. If you you know, the the, the the boffins will say a company is worth the value of its future cash flows. If you're buying any asset, all it's ever worth is the money you can get back from it over the, over the life of the time you own the the asset. And that's a combination of any dividends, any profits, and then whatever future sale price you sell the company for, a, a terminal value of one sort or another. If you can get back more than you pay for it, then it's worth buying. If you get back less than you pay for it, then you'd be silly to pay for it. If you can buy for 100 bucks and get $90 back, you're probably not going to do it. Although... people buy cars that way so that's a whole different conversation but generally speaking you're buying an asset because you're going to get at least what you paid for it back preferably more and preferably a lot more that's what a discounted cash flow does it says what are the future cash flows from this business this is this is all money i expect to get i'm going to put my hundred dollars down i'm going to get 110 dollars back in cash from this business therefore it's worth buying so jordan's right and i think i think at at a very academic level that's the only way you can accurately value a company yet I don't think you've ever used... Have you ever used discounted
1: cash flow? Well, so I was going to clarify the answer. Oh, okay. Bit. So, uh, I don't know how, what... I don't remember what we said. Maybe we mischaracterized. So,
0: uh, I didn't say I, that, by the way. I said I hardly ever used them, but yeah, i let you answer.
1: Yeah, so I'll clarify a little bit for, from a, like the Motley Fool research team here in Australia's <laughs> point of view. Some of us actually do use DCFs. Sure. Right? And... Um, you know, crazy enough, uh, so my colleague, or uh, our colleague Ryan Newman, he built a DCF for afterpay of all things. Okay. That's a hard one to build a DCF for, but he did build a DCF, and it was a very compelling DCF uh, when he built it. So it's not that we don't build DCFs. Mm-hmm. Um, we do. And then... Um, sometimes we, we could do a reverse dcf for example or we could look at the share price and basically or the current valuation that the market is assign, assigning and then come up with an estimate of what we think the the market is estimating as the, the sum total of the future yep, yep, yep. Um, cash flows right like, so there's right. A, so we use DCFs in multiple ways I guess what I said is I seldom actually build one myself. <laughs> and and, uh, and maybe I said that. And the reason I, I, like the most of the businesses I look at, they typically have, um, you know, profits or cash being generated out in the future. Um, they're generating lots of revenue. Mm. The revenue is growing, but they're mm. plowing almost everything back into the <laughs> business. So it, it becomes a little like, there are other. I can do a lot of other shorthands, and mm-hmm. I can arrive at the same answer. And one of the things I like not doing in investing is I try not to be too accurate. And it sounds like okay. This guy is not accurate, and this is a bad thing, right? But you know, accuracy—trying to be too accurate, too perfect—is yeah. it can be a big problem because it is going to scare you out of stuff, yep. right? And I just, I just go with the assumption that I am going to be wrong a lot of times, but I just want to make sure that I am. It's, it's like you know I want to bat in a way that I can have enough of those big hits <laughs> and if I can get those big hits yeah. it's okay to fail um, every now and then it's just fine I can fail 50% of the time I can still be okay and I'll still be okay so that's right. that's that's the framework and depending on the framework if you're looking at highly disruptive businesses mm. another way to think about it is that company uh, the widget company makes multiple different. today it makes <laughs> one widget yep it may it by looking at the company you can think that it's going to make widget b widget c widget d widget e widget f in the future you may now if you have enough confidence in what those widgets are and how much those widgets may make you can get an idea of well okay this this market is huge humongous and all it really needs to do is maybe you know grab 10 percent of that market and at scale many businesses basically have fixed costs or roughly fixed costs so their costs do not you know, if a company grows ten x, their costs do not have to grow ten x. Depending on the type of business, for sure. Um, like you know, so if it's a no, if it's a mm-hmm. bank, yes, if you want to grow the bank ten x, your probably costs are going to grow. You know, you have to find a, uh, that kind of leverage around mm-hmm. as well, right? right? So your leverage right. is also going to grow uh, proportionately. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many businesses, for example, software business, once mm-hmm. you've written the code, if you can, if you've written a piece of code, you can sell it to one person, or you can mm-hmm. sell the same code to 8 billion, 9 billion people. And effectively, all all the additional thing that you have to do is find a way to distribute it. And the Mm -hmm. distribution could be the internet, right? Which could basically mean it's free distribution. So at a high level, uh, scale is what I look for. And if I'm looking Mm -hmm. at scale, then I'm really just focused on Mm -hmm. how big it can get. And I can get a good sense of what the operating margins can be at that point. And that's probably more useful than trying to figure out what exactly the DCF... uh, Mm -hmm. You know, valuation is going to look like. So it's different ways of doing the same sort of thing. Again, as I said, you you can build a DCF model if you want, for Mm -hmm. even something like Afterpay.
0: True. So I I think that's absolutely right. I have said, and I will say again, I very, very, very rarely use a DCF. Um, And it's for a couple of reasons, I think. um, The. I, I regular listeners will know I'm a massive, massive, massive fan of investment psychology and understanding our own limitations as investors. And frankly, the market's limitations because there's opportunities there. One of the best advantages for someone who can train their own psychology is just to be a long-term investor. Because when the rest of the market is telling you to buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, um, and you can just ignore that and, and find good business and hold on to them. You're you're, you're, almost, you're it's almost unfair, the advantage you get from doing that, just by simply saying, I'm not going to listen to you, knuckleheads. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to stick with the company. I'm going to focus on the business itself and expect some sort of long-term return and not try and be buffered around by backwards and forwards, by sell, by sell. From a DCF perspective, the psychology there, generally speaking, is humans are very, very, very bad at letting the numbers actually drive the outcome, Right. There are, you mentioned Afterpay, Doc. Amazon's another one. Coming that the hyper growth. Now, Ryan, I haven't seen his DCF model. I'm sure it's great for Afterpay. But people, humans, investors, all of us, are very bad at being able to plug in large numbers for extended periods of time. I said this before. And look at the results and say, okay, fair enough. Now, if you'd have literally been able to forecast Amazon's, if you'd, have, if you'd have put 20% compound growth in Amazon's numbers from 1997, you would have paid every price ever. You would have not stopped buying Amazon from 1997 onwards. Because the, the the numbers that spat out from that are huge. Now, I don't know what the numbers would have been if you'd done that. Maybe call it two thousand dollars. to Pick a number; it's less than today's price, so let's not overdo it. Let's say nineteen. Let's say two thousand. You put the numbers in, and when the shares were trading for I don't know, hundred bucks a share, you did a model that said these shares are worth two thousand dollars in twenty twenty. You should have mortgaged your house, sold your car, you know, sent your kids down the salt mine, done everything possible, you get as much possible cash as you could find to get a twenty bagger in twenty years, and you would have retired stupidly rich. But no serious analyst, no serious even amateur investor, could honestly, even if they'd said, "Look, I think it'll grow for a lot for a long time," it's just impossible. It, it literally almost impossible for anyone to put those numbers in a spreadsheet and say in, two, nine, in the year two thousand. Amazon is worth 2000 dollars a share when the shares are currently 100 dollars People just can't do it. So what you do is say, well, maybe it's not like 20% a year. Maybe it look, maybe it's 15% a year for the first few years. And then I guess maybe it's 10% after that. And maybe, maybe things get normal. But yeah, by, by look, by 2014, Amazon's probably growing about the rate of the economy. So let's call that 3%. And the shares are worth $125. And you would have convinced yourself that was absolutely true, right? And and that's that's not a that's not a slide at anybody. That's just like that is just straight out psychology 101. So how do you avoid it? Well Frankly, by kind of avoiding the 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 processes that lead you to make those mistakes. Now, I think DCFs are super useful for low-growth companies. If you're buying a utility, a telecom uh, telstra, for example, a telco, or a pipeline, or something, or even a toll road in in non-COVID times, you know whether whether the the traffic flow growth is going to be somewhere between two and two and a half percent for a year. You want to absolutely work out what that's worth, right? Because there is just not that range of outcomes. But if you've got any company with any sort of growth. I dare say that using a DCF, putting the numbers in the boxes, are painful. Now, I will say one last quick thing, which is that I, I I have the luxury of not using it, probably because I have used them for years. So for for new investors, there is some value in doing it because I've kind of internalised. You know, I'm no Warren Buffett, right? But just to give an, an example, I'm not trying not trying to make myself sound good by comparison, but you know, Charlie Munger said of Warren Buffett, he's never seen him use do a DCF. Right on the flip side, Buffett is such a um, genius, quite literally, that he could probably do it in his head anyway. So the fact he hasn't actually physically done a DCF, you know, he would know roughly. Okay, if I get growth of this, then I can pay that. Uh, yeah, probably, probably off the top of his head. Um, but the same thing kind of holds. Once you've done it a bit, you have a you have a sense of the flavour of how much you should pay for a company growing at a certain rate. Um, but generally speaking, why I don't use a DCF is it stops me rationalising downwards a company's growth and stops me making the the mistakes, generally speaking. Um, I still make the mistake, by the way, in a whole lot of areas, including Afterpay we talked about before. I have never bought that and it's $100 a share now. Um, But, you know, it it stops me being tempted to downplay a company's growth just because it seems like the responsible thing to do. Even if I'm not talking to anyone else, I've never talked to myself, um, it's just too hard to put those numbers in and and seem like it's a reasonable thing to do. Any more thoughts on that, Doc?
1: No, I think that's a brilliant summary. I like it.
0: Mate, you're very kind and, you know, I must you, do I? Are you, you Maybe you owe me money Do you owe me money? Um, Why are you being nice to me?
1: Oh, we can rude. see we will, we'll, we'll talk that That's offline
0: <laughs> Good deal Mate, should we do a uh, Should we do a special mailbag Episode this weekend?
1: Well, it's not uh, No, we have to do
0: it, right? <laughs> uh, Mate, can I tell you The number uh, of questions uh, we've got We have to do it
1: I, I think the question <laughs> should be We are not going to do one We're not doing it What do you think? Oh What Come do you think
0: then? then?
1: Uh, we should do it uh, <laughs>
0: Just different (laughs) questions same answer. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. All right, now we got through that. If you do want your question answered, please do send us that question because we can't answer it unless you send it to us. Because then we don't know it's a question. And (laughs) anyway, um, so hit us up on the socials. You can get us on Twitter. That's the one place you can find both Doc myself and the Motley Fool's corporate account. So Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. and the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. That's on Twitter. Uh, feel free to tag us in your tweets. Feel free to send us a direct message. Uh, knock yourself out with that sort of stuff. It's kind of fun. If you are on Instagram, uh, all the cool kids are these days. If you've got photos of meals, I wonder if Instagram's business is down because people aren't eating out as much. Do you reckon there's less posts because people can't Instagram their.
1: Oh, no, no, no. No? Dude, no, no. you, you can Instagram from your balcony. You you got, don't you have a, you have a, like a
0: restaurant? Isn't that what Instagram is all about—the um, meals and stuff?
1: No, no. Instagram is about like you know, um, people making contorting, you know, contorting their shape <laughs> and making weird all the beautiful faces. people. You reckon? Well, like you know, it's about you know, you, you, if you're beautiful, you can be on Instagram. If you're not beautiful, you can be on Instagram. If you're something, you can be on Instagram. If you're nothing, you can be on Instagram. It's like Instagram is for everyone.
0: I'm in the um, I'm in the last bracket of those ones. Uh, so on Instagram. At The Motley Fool AU is the company account, or at TMF Scott P is me. If you want to get in touch with us, feel free to do it that way. And again, feel free to tag us or send us a direct message on Facebook. I'm seems old school these days, old-fashioned. Everyone's parents are on Facebook, and then maybe these days I'm in the age group where I'm everyone's own parent, I'm not sure. But hit us up on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia. Surprise, surprise. And I'm Scott Phillips Money. And you can email us, info at fool.com.au. If you have another question, you don't want to use one of the socials, feel free to email us, info at fool.com.au. And our wonderful member services, Fools, will pass that along. Now, before we go, Doc, I am of the understanding that you have an investment service called Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Is that right? That seems to right. And am I right in assuming that it is stupidly cheap?
1: It's, it's, well, it's very
0: cheap. Could I buy a membership for less than a cup of coffee a week?
1: Well, Well, you know, here's the thing. Um. Uh, somebody actually sent me a note saying it's not right to call it cheap because cheap makes the service sound not nice. Oh. So cheap and nasty cheap. Yeah,
0: like cheap is, is okay. a nasty cheap.
1: Is it inexpensive? Inexpensive is the correct word. I okay. was told that, you know, that we should use the word inexpensive.
0: Right. It's not cheap, it's inexpensive.
1: It's, it's super inexpensive.
0: The price is the same though, right? The
1: price is still the same. Okay. Is it super inexpensive? <laughs> it's, it's like super, super inexpensive. Is it
0: less Expensive? Is it more expensive than a cup of coffee a week?
1: Oh, it's it's yeah. It's like you know, a cup of coffee is expensive.
0: And and your service is less expensive. It's inexpensive. (laughs) Inexpensive. Should people join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities?
1: I think so. I mean, if they want to, you know, look at these interesting companies, the non-banks and the non, uh, (laughs) you know, the the non-miners and the non-banks. If you want to look at those sort of things, then you can have a look at you know. If you want the banks, uh, I can't help you.
0: (laughs) And is it true? That people can go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast to get a special podcast deal to join you at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities.
1: I think that's true too. There you
0: go. You've heard it from the horse's mouth. I've led the horse to water. He's had a big drink and he recommends as do I that you join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and get some of the goodness that Doc and Kevin roll out. Again, market beating, great businesses. You know, a bit of extra risk, but you get a bit of extra return with that at least thus far. And we expect that to continue. Past performance is, of course, as ever, no guarantee. But as I've also heard it said elsewhere, what else is a better indicator? So I'll leave that for you to ponder. That wraps us up, but before we go, don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money Podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app, or Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, and why wouldn't you? Please give us a five star rating on the aforementioned iTunes. It's Apple Day. Help Doc out. Give us give us some ratings. See so if you want if you want to give Doc a bit of a bit of support. Just throw throw a rating up there. Do it for Doc. Don't do it for me. Do it for Doc. And of course, do please tell your friends, share some love with them, send them some links, suggest they join the podcast or one of our social pages and get some good stuff from us. If they like it, it could be a bit of fun. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. I've, what did I mention about this week? I The Bunning Sausage Sizzle, I emailed about this week, talked about the budget last week. It is just a random plethora of wonderful, exciting and different bits of my brain that just Splurge onto the page. If you want some of that and some marketing from us, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back, surprise, on Sunday for a special Motley Fool mailback Full on. Full on. <sharp inhale>